0: Welcome, everybody. This is Mark Horseman of Manager Tools. Glad you could join us. Welcome to the Summer Licensee Conference Call of 2013. I'm glad we're doing these things quarterly. A couple of quick announcements before we start. First of all, we've just finished recording video of the entire Effective Manager Conference. We're editing the footage now. The idea behind video is that the quality Uh, regarding capture and also streaming a video from the website are finally where we want them to be. In addition, we just can't get to everybody in the world physically with public conferences, even though we're planning on going to India next year. We've not been, and we have a lot of fans there, and the price point is going to be lower. Um, The product we're providing is the entire Effective Manager Conference, with opportunities to send us practice feedback and coaching, as as well as getting the entire Trinity rollout uh, email support system after the fact and support from us along the way. Um, There are two ways to buy, to purchase the video EMC. One is if you just want to get the value of the EMC without coming – uh, you can purchase a license to view it, and that will be active for a full year. It includes all the email support and so on for 450 bucks. So it's roughly 45% of the cost of attending, not even counting travel and uh, um, lost time, and so opportunity costs and so on. Or if you're a, a manager tools licensee, if you renew your license, uh, it's only 200 bucks on top of the license fee, so it will be a total of 365 bucks. And if you do that... You can maintain access to the video EMC for as long as you have a license. Uh, if it sounds like we're trying to incentivize licensing, we are, um, and we also want to make it available. Um, and an eight-hour course for 450 bucks, we think, is is pretty reasonable, particularly since it's interactive. Um, okay, so that's the first. Uh, that should come out in late August. That's the plan right now, and it's supporting our MT license renewal. Timing. If you want to renew, even though you're only six months into your year, if you don't know this, we've always done this, if you renew at that point to get access to the video EMC, um, we'll we'll simply add a year to the end of your license, so you won't lose the six months you already have left. Um, Also, our Effective Relationships series of DISC tasks comes out uh, soon after that, probably in October. We've recorded all of the casts. Uh, and for Wendy and I and for Mike and I, that was an enormous burden. Um, and, r- by the way, the r- reason for October timeframe is the intent is for it to be an incentive to, to career license renewals. And basically what we've done is for every pairing of DISC boss and subordinate, we've created a three-hour-long podcast that explains everything you need to know about manager and subordinate. So, for instance, if you're a high-C boss and you're high-I direct drives you absolutely bonkers there's now a cast for that there are literally 36 cast pairings so high d boss with dis and c high i boss with dis and c all the way through all four bosses and then also high i direct with four different types of bosses high d direct with four different types of bosses so you can see that gets 32 plus uh there are um then there are some other casts as well. It's the equivalent of 108 hours of casts, which is, if you think about weeks, and weeks being half an hour, that's four years' worth of weekly disc guidance. It's, every cast is exceptionally long uh, and very detailed. Um, and, and, and here's the pricing. If you just want one of the casts, if you know who you are and who your direct is, it's 25 bucks for that one cast, three hours long. Um, if you're, so if you know your disc and your bosses, you get three hours, 25 bucks. If you're a manager, for instance, and you've got a bunch of directs, and you may not know their profiles or you've got a wide range, those four casts, uh, in other words, I'm a D boss and my direct is a D, my direct is an I, my direct is an S, my direct is a C, that's 75 bucks. so forecast for the price of 3 um, Again, that works if you're a boss and you know your profile and you want the full range of guidance about your directs now and in the future. Um, or if you know you're an I, high I, direct, but you don't know what your boss is, um, you could buy a series of I'm an I and my boss is a D, my boss is an I, my boss is an S, my boss is a C, and that will last you for the rest of your career, frankly, uh, for 75 bucks. If you want half of the series, every boss, D, I, S, and C with all the directs, um, that's 125 bucks. And if you want all 32 casts, but the, plus you have the other three or four that give you the basics of that disc and some science behind disc and so on, that's 250 bucks. Uh, there won't be any discount for volume purchases of disc. Um, and the plan is they'll be available, like I said, uh, around October. And yes, the book will come out um, this year. We just decided to put video first because a lot of people have asked us about video. Not saying as much people ask about video as asked about the book, but a lot of people ask us about video. And we want people who can't get to us to be able to do the conference. Okay, enough. I've talked long enough. took five minutes. Question number one, which 10 manager tools, cast would you suggest... And and, and the question is really so dependent upon you and where you are. Some folks need help with relationships. Other folks need help with projects. Some with just running things and making things happen. Uh, Wendy and I have drawn up a Hall of Fame series, and I've put together my 10 favorite from a shortened version of the Hall of Fame, which I think has 30 or 40 calves. And they are anything about interviewing. Um, and soon there will be an effective interviewer series of casts for you all, much like the, like, like the interviewing series. The Juggling Co-On about delegation. Orson's Law of Project Management. How to Deal with an Arrogant Producer, which people ask me about all the time. My best guy is such a jerk. Owning the Inputs. Steel, t- steel Cage Deathmatch with the tip of the hat to Dan McGuire. Pre-Wire, which astounds people every time they hear it. Race don't chase, which so few managers seem to pay attention to budgeting. And it seems like, over in the last 30 years, guys, less and less. It used to be if you were a manager, the difference between a manager and supervisor was a manager had budget. Now there are people who are managers and senior managers and directors and assistant VPs who don't have budget. You have to be a VP to have a budget, which is bad. Um, But anyway, you can't be friends with your directs. And how to give a decision brief. And that's a generic answer, which isn't really helpful to any one person, but those are the ones I like the most. And any, any author who tells you that he or she likes all their, all their books the same because they're like children, I find that bizarre. I don't know, that, that makes no sense to me or to Wendy. Uh, and by the way, we have a special treat for you. Uh, question 12 is a career tools kind of question. So Wendy and I collaborated in the answer, and Wendy will deliver, be delivering the answer. I wanted to say that now so Wendy can get very nervous before, before that. Uh, before she has to answer. Okay?
1: That's all right. fine. Question.
0: Yes, it's my pleasure. How do you know when it's time to let somebody go? Folks, it depends on the situation. The leash, though, in this situation, you read this scenario, it's much shorter for an outside contractor. In fact, there's really no leash at all. You, you can sneeze and get rid of an outside contractor. Not, not that I'm suggesting you should do that. Frankly. I would have fired an employee for the situations you describe in light of the amount of time you've been working with this person trying to help them, if I, if I understand your situation correctly. So if I would have fired an employee, I would have definitely fired a contractor even before I would have fired an employee. And to me, what bothers me is the lack of progress. That's, that's not acceptable. It's absolutely not acceptable. If, if your company... Uh, has the same revenue for five years and the same profits, even if those margins are good, your company, if it's public, will lose the ability to gain capital in the public markets because Wall Street will hammer them. And I know some of you don't think about Wall Street very often, and, and we're not suggesting that you should manage your company for Wall Street, but if you don't understand that your company's stock price affects your company's ability to get capital to invest, particularly in down markets, then you're not paying attention to the big picture for those of us in, in profit-oriented organizations. Um, and by the way, you don't have, in this situation, you don't have to follow, follow our guidance for late-stage coaching or, or firing somebody um, with a contractor. You really don't. Gather all your evidence on a particular contractor and end the contract. Um, now, look, if you're gathering your evidence and you realize you don't have all the evidence you might like, okay, that's your fault. And your mistake oughtn't be taken out on this particular person. So gather some more information. And it sounds like this person will give you plenty more in the next three months. And then wish them well. Be nice about it. There's nothing wrong with being nice and saying, you don't fit with our plan for constantly improving and you don't fit with our needs for serving our customers. And so I'm going to find a different contractor and I wish you well. Um, And I'm going to take this to the next level even though I'm just only going to hint at it. You can make this decision fairly analytical Figure out what this person's responsible for, and measure them against those those criteria. Um, measure the time you spent. Put a create a proxy for the quality failings they've created, and determine the cost uh, in terms of your effort of putting a new person in the role and the the cost of them learning your systems and so on. Um, make a guess. You don't have to share that with anybody, but start doing an analytical process. So that if one of your bosses says, well, show me the numbers, why we should change contractors, you may have to put a proxy in there for goodwill of this person who knows people in your company. But it sounds like he's doing so poorly that his performance, his negative performance will outweigh any goodwill that he's had because he's been there a while. Okay, question number three. How can I establish a way of building up relationships if my director is not doing one-on-ones with me? Uh, um, I, th- this is manager tools. It's not direct tools. We've said it a billion times. If your boss doesn't want to have a relationship with you, there's not a lot you can do about that. Okay, There's just not. And I used to hate these questions, folks, because I thought, are people listening? I can't, I can't help you. If your boss is a jerk, your boss is going to be a jerk, and you have very little control, very little influence. And, and now I realize that the reason you all are asking us is because you really believe we should have the answer. Um, I wish I did, but I don't. When I do, I'll be a billionaire and I'll retire. Um, and for the record, on this particular question, I asked for some additional information because I was uncertain about some of the details. And the person who asked said, I'm trying to copy my director into some of my key project emails. I want to keep them updated so I don't have the regular one-on-ones. He's not closely following emails from his directs. Big surprise. He's a high eye. <laughs> uh, I am feeling he ignores quite a lot of emails that he doesn't think are important. Yeah, he's a high eye. That's what high eyes do. They ignore everything that's not important, or the person who's not in front of him right at that moment. So basically, my guidance here is: I think you're probably doing all you can. If you're a high C direct and you're working for a high eye boss, you're only rarely going to feel well-connected because your definition of connectedness and your boss's definition of connectedness are two different things. In fact, your boss may feel terribly connected to you because he says, you're a genius, and I let you do what you need to do, and I mean, what you do doesn't interest me. And the highest form of connection I can have to you is say, I trust you. You get to do what you want. That may not help you very much, though. Um, the fact that you're, more, that you're distant from him when everybody else reports to him is not makes this way, way harder. I think you probably already have done this, but please listen to our cast about a boss update, which is the soft version of a one-on-one, but it sounds like you already know that exists. And I, I wish there were more we could do for directs beyond just career tools. And what I would suggest is your boss is the kind of person we're doing manager tools for, but please don't suggest to him that he should listen. That's not a good plan. Okay, question four. How do I maximize the effectiveness of mandated panel interview on which I'm a panelist or the chair? (laughs) My notes say, I should say, shoot yourself in the face. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, Look, here's what you do. Prepare two to four behavioral questions that you really want answers to. If you don't know how to prepare a behavioral question, there's a podcast on how to create a behavioral interviewing question from scratch. And since you're on this call, you're a licensee, gosh darn it. Use the interview creation tool. Think about the job and create an interview. And then ask the first two questions. If you're an hour into the interview, and it's a, I'm amazed that there are seven people in a room and they're only an hour-long interview. But if you're in a two-hour-long interview and you're halfway in, and nobody's asked this person, tell me about yourself, ask them, tell me about yourself. Okay? And then be prepared to probe their answers based on what they tell you. And try to ignore the stupid probes that other people offer. There's going to be one person in the room that's going to say, that's a good answer. That reminds me of my niece or something like that, which is insipid and ludicrous, but it happens. Um, some people on panel interviews feel that part of what they need to do is prove to the other people on the panel that they're a good interviewer, which is generally the exact opposite of what happens. If you want to probe on other people's questions, I completely support that. You have to be careful. If you are knowledgeable and you probe, but your probe shows up the questioner, you want to be careful about that. So keep your ego under your hat. Practice taking good notes. One of the things that panel interviews are good for is that you didn't, answer the qu- you didn't ask the question, and I find that when people don't ask the question themselves, they become better note takers. Um, and the key to taking good notes in an interview is to write down not what you think or a characterization, but rather exactly what was said. If you get into a discussion with everybody else post-interview and you said, he said this, that will trump everybody else saying, I really liked him. Write down exactly what was said. Okay? Write down questions that other people ask that you like, and write down ones that you hate. And then... Interview, inasmuch as you're a part of the team and you can't cover all the questions, is if you're going to have to do an interview results capture meeting. And if you don't know what that is, there's a podcast called The Interview Results Capture Meeting, which probably should have been on my list. Uh, Oh, it is on my list because I talked about anything related to interviewing. And keep your mouth shut about not liking the format because you're not in a power position. Just don't do it. Don't tell everybody, I listen to this podcast and they think these interviews are crap. It's just going to tick people off. The people who put together panel interviews don't know what they're doing and are insecure. And you pointing it out, pointing out uh, mistakes of people who have power and are insecure is not a good career move. Okay, question five. Is it appropriate for directs to have meetings with your boss? Um, it's hard to say in this particular question. Generally, the answer is no. Um it would help me to know more about the technical nature of what you do. Um, architects, I would say, sure. I mean, I know I worked in architect. I've re- consulted to an architectural firm, and a junior architect might very well go to the most senior architect uh, for something. But frankly, the place this happens most often is software people. And software people grossly overestimate their need to have a meeting with a senior technical person. Sometimes they need to meet with the architect, but frankly, most people don't like the architect, and it's a waste of time. The architect just pontificates about how the structure of the new system is going to be great rather than solving a particular coding problem that someone is having. Um, I will say this. this is an example of a question that, for some reason, I think we're trying a little too hard, and in the future, I, want, I encourage you to tell your friends that we should try not so hard to anonymize your questions to the point where it's too vague for me. Uh, some of this I, I would have liked to have known more. I, I'm okay with this answer, but uh, if you want to know more information about this particular situation, feel free to write me an email at customer service at com and tell me that this came out of the licensee call, and I'll be happy to give you more information. Um, the question really becomes, what are they doing? If they're working out technical issues because the work they do requires the input of senior people, uh, that's fine. And the ego that comes along with this person who's a high D or high I means you'll have to listen to him tell you how cool he is working with people that outrank you. Whatever. You know, okay, fine. <laughs> Remember, when your people try to tell you how impressive they are, try not to forget you're the boss and you have a sign in your forehead that says, watch out, I could fire you. Um, You don't have to use that power. You just have to remember that you have it. Um, Three suggestions specifically here, though. For now, don't do anything. Wait. Don't do anything overt. Your lack of history here, I think you've been there four months or something, uh, is a liability, and it will be seen as insecurity if you try to stop someone from continuing a relationship that predated you. Your guy probably thinks he's somebody that he can do this right out in front of you. He's so cool, but trust me, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and you're his manager. This guy would be well advised to not be so blunt, and it seems you think he is being blunt, about his politicking, if that's in fact what it is. I I think there's a good chance that's what it is. Second thing, develop a better relationship with those more senior people. You've only been there four months, so you can't can't be best buds with them yet. And I don't mean have a plan to become their buddy, but at least get to know them well enough that you can ask them whether or not your guy is just networking or whether he has a legitimate reason for being there. There's a 25%, 30% chance that they don't want him there either. And if, you, if you, every time you see them going to a meeting that one of your people is at, not necessarily this guy, or that they're going to be the meeting where you're at, go early or wait until they walk in and sit next to them. And, and, and get to know them. Don't mention your guy. Just get to know them every time you can so that when you finally ask, you're not making a cold ask about somebody. And then they might feel like, you're new. I know this other guy. He's fine. And then you're kind of stymied. And then I'd say the third point, and this is old news, of course, keep managing him. Basically, I try not to worry too much about my people's trying to build their networks. It, I mean, that's a good thing. I tell them, build your network. And if this guy who works for you thinks he can get promoted just by having friends, there are two factors worth considering. If senior people in your firm just promote those folks whom they know, irrespective of people's abilities, that's a bad sign for the organization, right? Um, Second, you have more knowledge of this person's results than anybody else in the firm. If he thinks he belongs at a higher level and you don't think he does, and you have data in the form of weaker-than-needed results or performance weakness overall, it won't matter what he does, provided you're in an organization that values performance. Question six, um, how can I motivate my mature team to stay engaged when their site is being closed? Uh, This is a tough situation. I think generally you're doing the right thing. For the record on this question, I had to ask how long we had, and a month is a lot different than a year, um, and the timing is not till the end of next year. The site shutdown will begin in the second quarter of 2014 and full closure in December. And we're only talking about three people here, which I'm going to come back to, okay? Um, so my, my questions were along the lines of, how many people were offered packages and for how much and for what reasons, who have accepted, who have declined. And basically I was told that roughly 60% of the team were offered packages based on their fit of expertise and so on. Some were a basic package, some were a bonus package. Um, They were given until 1 September to make a decision. A few have declined already. Most are keeping options open until September. Um, So my guidance here, I wouldn't apply a general rule uh, you, you you mentioned in here your approach is to appeal their interest. I think we have to be careful about smothering the same all, a bunch of different people with the same type of jam. Um, ask yourself what each one of these people needs in order to have them do what the organization needs from them. Um, I'll, I'll give you an, I'll give you a really bad example that you may be aware of from the recent history of manager tools. If if for some reason I needed Wendy to do something for the organization that was distasteful for her. I don't mean in an ethical way, but just something she didn't love doing. And I said, I need you to do this for the good of manager tools. She'd do it without in question. It wouldn't even be – I mean, it would be – she would just say, okay. And I wouldn't hear another word about it. On the other hand, Mattel, my assistant, my short-lived assistant, If I had said to her, I need you to do this for the benefit of the organization, she would say, well, I don't understand what that is because she was new. I motivate Wendy insofar as I need to do that ever uh, very differently than I motivate Danny or than I motivate Mattel or, for that matter, than I motivate Mike. Um, So I think you have to be careful about saying my plan – I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a general plan. But unless you've got a hundred people where you need a PowerPoint slide and say, "Here's what we're doing," um, and you can't reach everybody because you're a director or a senior director, I think the, folks, the, the focus ought to be: what does each of your people need in order to have them do what the organization needs? Some people are going to need handholding. Some people need their professionalism appealed to. Some need lots of questions about their plans and family and so on. Okay, if I had ten or more people, I would probably keep a board. I would keep it private, depending upon – if I was an EVP and there were 50 managers in my division and my division was going somewhere else, I'd have a board in my office of movers and jumpers and stayers, people who would move, people who would leave the company who would jump, and those who were going to stay and close down the shop and then stay in the local area or whatever. And I would think about why they're doing what they're doing and where that, what they want to do and how I can appeal to them if I want to appeal to them. I also think that oftentimes we miss the opportunity that when a company shuts down a, an office, the idea is we need to keep all those people. Well, no, if we needed to keep all those people, we may not be shutting down the office. So uh, the first thing I would say is if I had somebody who was going to jump that I didn't want to keep, that's just one less person for me to worry about. In fact... I might help them with their resume, right? I, I think we make a mistake of saying we're going to treat everybody the same or i got to try to keep everybody or let's try to keep everybody happy. You cannot keep everybody happy. But getting to know each one of them enough that you can decide what does this person need to, so I can get the most out of them, and that's fair and reasonable to them based on their situation, that, that takes time, individual time. I probably encourage all of them to take a DISC uh, profile to help me and to help them with their move and their remaining careers, and that's how I'd pitch it. Hey, listen, guys, it's not that much money. And whether you stay or go, I think this would be great for you guys to know. Um, I'd offer them resume help for those that want it. Um, there was a guy who wrote in about a year ago who said his, his team was being made redundant. It may not have been a year ago. I don't remember. And, um, and, and uh, he said, you know, I'd kind of like to buy them all. Uh, the the interviewing series. Um, uh, I think that's right. Wendy, is that right? Was the interviewing series?
1: People, me, um, resume workbook and the interviewing series.
0: Re- re- resume workbook and the interviewing series. And um, and I told him because you're willing to buy it. I think we didn't we give it to him or we gave him a discount or something just because. Yeah, we he, and I wrote about it and things. I like think because. That's just a world-class move. I wish more people would do that. Whether you buy our product or not, I don't care. But gee whiz, somebody's leaving. They've been there for three or four or five years. They've been a good employee, but their family needs to stay. That's a good choice for them. Help them make a good transition. And most people's resumes stink. They're so bad. I I mean, I get friends' resumes. I'm just like, really? Seriously? Um, If somebody's been there 20 years and they haven't interviewed in 20 years, they're going to suck at interviewing. And show them you care about them. Nothing wrong with that. Um, something else I would do is communicate like crazy about everything and, unless you're specifically told about a specific item not to do so. communicate, Burden them with all the crap you tell them about everything that's going on with the move. The more you tell them, the more they're going to believe that you want them to know because you'd want to know if you were in their shoes. I think sharing until it hurts is the professional way to deal with somebody who's been at work, given their best, or what passes for their best, even if it's not what you think would be your best. And now the company has made an organizational decision that is no fault of theirs, at least in the abstract, and, and they're going to lose their job because of it. You, you have a chance here to earn their trust by openness and candor. Um, now, the final point I want to make here, um, only three people were involved in this. And guys, to me, that is not a team problem. That is not a team communication problem. That is an individual communication problem. If, if for some reason we had to disband manager tools, I wouldn't think I had a team communication problem. I would send out a short email, say, be on the phone with me and I'll tell you what's going to happen and then I'll talk to each one of you. And I would rely on my relationship rather than on a broadcast plan. We have to be careful as managers We don't start acting like HR, and I think we have some HR people on the call, so don't take that the wrong way, HR, but too often HR comes up with a broad brush plan for the entire organization, and managers implement that rather than thinking, okay, this is helpful to me, but now I have to turn this into a message for every single individual who reports to me, and then if they are managers, I have to help them craft the message to their people as well. That's what great leaders do. And I promised, uh, uh, Wendy and I had lunch with one of the true heroes of the, ma- the history of manager tools, uh, Missy Porter, who is, I believe, on the call with us today. Uh, Missy is no longer in Texas, has moved on to a better job in Oklahoma, and uh, she came back to Fredericksburg recently. We had a chance to have lunch with her, and I told her that I had been telling the Missy Porter story. In fact, the Missy Porter story is in the video EMC. So, Missy, thanks for being with us. There's some other people here whose names I know, but they didn't, I didn't tell them I was going to tell everybody who was on the call, so I'll pretend that I don't know that you're there. Um, Question seven, what tactics, actions, approaches might be effective when confronting a poor management situation? Oh, well. Look, guys, stop worrying about what your bosses do. No, that's not right. It's okay to worry about it, but don't think your worry is like a lever that will get you anywhere. Worry about you and your team. Protect them as best you can. Manage your team well. Build relationships. <clears throat> listen well. Give your team political guidance. I like what you said, okay? When they have to interact with these chowder heads that are doing stupid things, give them political guidance. Tell them to keep their mouth shut. And, you know, I'm, I'm the guy to hear that from because there were times I didn't keep my mouth shut. And it's been my experience that there are only two types of people who, don't keep their, who, who open their mouth, the people who have really shit-hot results and get a pass, and the people who don't and get sidelined are fired. And far too many people don't have the results to go around mouthing off. Um, it does sound like you're doing some good things here, so I'm pleased about what I, what I read here. Don't confront poor management at levels senior to you. Nonprofits are the worst at this. Danny can tell you the worst. They're worse than academia because they think they're not. And all you have to do, to me, is say the word capricious, and you know all you need to know about how willing they might be to punish those people who speak up. And look, I'm sorry to tell you that. There's no magic bullet. You don't have the power other than taking care of your people and delivering results as best you can. And the last thing is, if I were your friend, and that's the way I approach Manager Tools. That's the way Wendy approaches Career Tools. When Danny and I are on the road, we, we think to ourselves what John Luck put at the start of his book. This is what we tell our friends. And if you were our friend, we'd help you get your resume ready. Life is too short. Unless you're completely enamored of the mission of this organization, and there's no other organization in the world that does it, find another job. No sense working for people you don't respect. Question eight, Um, do you recommend interviewing or hiring overqualified candidates? Yes, I do. I love this question. I love this question. This is a missed opportunity for so many managers right now. I love having an advantage in the hiring market that other people dismiss. Oh, he's overqualified. That must be bad. Really? What did overqualified become bad? Um, In my opinion, this is almost a money ball opportunity, Right. You get to pay the guy what the going rate is for the job, but you get like an all-star. Somebody who's overqualified. And, yeah, look, there are risks, okay? The first thing I say is I love overqualified people because that means I don't have to worry about their qualifications. Let's, let's, be, let's start there. When I interview overqualified people, I recommend you go a little overboard telling them how excited you are about how much ability they have. Yeah, you heard me right there. Most managers... Make the candidate's overqualifiedness a negative. Oh well, you're overqualified. That's you know that's a bit of a problem. You know, it's like it's just like you might as well poke the guy in the face with a poker. It's just a hot poker. We don't recommend doing that at all. If they're stepping down, they know it. Don't rub their nose in it. A hiring manager who makes a big deal out of, out of somebody's overqualifiedness as a negotiating ploy is just hurting somebody's feelings to remind them I have power and a job and you don't. Um, if they're stepping down, they know it, and 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 they're trying to find a job similar to the last one, they haven't been able to do it, so they're willing to go down a level. Now uh, if, if they got a job from a manager who made a big deal out of the fact that they were stepping down in a negative way, they'd probably feel like they were being, they were being giving a handout. God, let's not hire people and handicap them with an emotional state that's not good. Um, now look, here's what everybody misses. The issue with hiring overqualified people is losing them later, okay, because they want a better job than the one they have and they keep looking. But that is not a hiring problem. That is a managing problem. So we managed the crap out of these people. You know, you, you could try one on ones and get to know them and feedback and coaching and delegation. I mean, that, that could do, that could help. But the key here is to make them want to stay. Because whatever qualifications that they have that they could use somewhere else, they've never had a boss as good as you. And they'll go home and tell their spouse, yeah, I might be able to make some more money somewhere else, but I made some more money at the last place, and they canned me, and I did good at my job. This guy I'm working for now, he's a little bit younger than me, or he's a little bit different, but this guy knows what the heck he's doing. He shoots straight with me. He's honest. He cares about me. He knows my kids' names. He spends time with me. He's candid with me about my mistakes, but he doesn't rub my nose in them. He tells me when I'm doing good. Gee whiz! I mean, that's that. I mean, to me, it's like I want to be in the Olympics of management and be given an overqualified team and say the only thing that I've got to do is retain them. Okay, I'll retain them, and boy, will my performance be good. Um, now, look, if the job they're in is in much is a much lower level than the one they used to be, they're going to keep looking for another job, and I think that's completely reasonable. So I would. I think it's normal. I also think that they have a special obligation to keep their mouths especially well shut about the fact that they're looking for another job amongst the team. Okay? If they were to say anything about their search, particularly in the line of, um, hey, this is just a way to pay the bills for me, or hey, of course, I am still looking. I'm way overqualified for this role that you're in, that you're not overqualified for. I'd call them in. I would not give them feedback, and I'd tell them, say that again, and I'll make your search urgent. It's incredibly ungrateful and rude of you to be advertising that you think you're better than this role. If you're in the role, for now, you're no better than the role itself. If you thought you were so much better than the role, you bloody well shouldn't have taken the offer. In taking it, you put your family first, and that's admirable. I'm happy you're here. Don't besmirch that. By implying that it was some mercenary transaction, because in mercenary games the one with the most power wins, and that would be me, my friend. We care about our work here. We care about each other. If you want to advertise that that's the kind of person you are, mercenary, or if that is actually who you are, there is no place for you here on my team. I'm good at hiring people. I can hire somebody else to replace you. Pack your bags. If you're not going to do that, if you're not willing to pack your bags because of your family or whatever, then you owe an apology to the few folks already here whom you ran your mouth to. I'll expect to hear from them that you have. That used to be a rant. That would have been a rant five years ago. Um, But that's what I'd say, guys. I'd hire an overqualified person and say, okay, time to put a lid on that stuff. And you might leave in a year or two, but I'll get the most out of you I possibly can. I'm going to work like hell to get you to stay. If I had a sense that a person that I was hiring was that kind of person, and, and look, guys, many are, that where they would come in and their attitude would leak out in such a way that they'd be saying, well, this is just a way station of my career. I wouldn't hire them because we don't hire just for skills. We hire for fit as well. I'd go back to my team and ask not just who's most qualified, but also who will keep that under their hat and fit in and be respectful of those people who were overqualified. And look, even the biggest team player still would be smart to take a better offer in a year or two when the economy improves. And guys, we should cheer them for for, that we were able to help them, that we got a lot out of them, and that they were able to take a step back up, and that the fact that they were employed made it easier for them to do it. What that means, then, is we need to start right away working on our bench once we hire this person, we have a greater risk of loss. So start working on your bench so that you've got people you could fill right in the moment this person leaves. Have a replacement in mind and already talked to and already essentially interviewed. And lots of managers we know don't like doing that. They just want the search to be over. Um, but that's not the way to be really, really effective. Okay, question nine. Um, what is the best way to handle salary and pay discussions? Um, yeah, you're probably right. You could have done it better, and that's okay. Salary, salary stuff is kind of hard. It's amazing to me that HR says we're a resource. I know we've got HR people on the call, but HR says they're a resource. But they, HR doesn't do real well with coaching managers when I talk about salary. They say send them to us, which is bad. Okay? So, yeah, you should have known what to do. And now you'll know what to do. And, guys, that's how we learn things. Adult learning model. You do it. You suck. (laughs) You learn from your mistakes and you get better. Um, So let let yourself off the hook. Honestly. Your boss had to get involved? Fine. That stuff happens all the time. Let yourself off the hook. Okay? Now, let me give you the simple answer to what you do when somebody asks for more money. You say no. Always say no initially to a request for more money. If your organization particularly has a standard review schedule where money is not discussed, I just talked to an executive. He's one mile from me right now. And um, he had a guy come to him and say, I, I, I need a 50% raise. And this is a guy who was at an executive level, and this person who was asking for a raise knew full well that the organization only discussed pay once a year. It was simply not done to talk about pay at any of the time of the year. And they had a long history of taking care of people when it came to pay. What do you say to an executive who knows the company only talks about it one time a year and then says, I really need a 50% increase, and I need it right away, or I'm leaving? I'll tell you what you say. Good luck. Um, So what you say in this situation is the immediate answer is no. The company makes salary decisions around performance discussion. I know that makes it harder for you, but you're not alone with that. It's pretty normal. Now, if you think there's a possibility that they've earned some sort of increase in between pay discussions, go to your boss, see if he or she validates that, and then tell them they have to put together a presentation. I'm not the boss, but your direct who's wanting more money. they got to put together a presentation on how they've earned it. And you further discriminate there. For your best performers, you show them how to do that. And for less great performers, you leave it up to them. This is how all requests for organizational resources are made, with a proposal based on the merits. And many people don't understand that pay and performance are inextricably linked. If you want more pay, you have to show more performance. That's always why I chuckle at young college kids saying, I'd like to negotiate for more salary. Oh, do you have an extra 10% of your brain strapped there in your backpack, son, that you're going to give me now that you were going to withhold from me coming to work at the previous salary? You're not negotiating when you're asking for money. You're begging. Okay? If it's someone you don't believe has earned a raise, guys, you have to be willing to just say no and talk about their performance. Now, you're in a pickle if you've never talked about performance before, but that's why the manager tools model says one-on-ones and feedback and coaching and delegation. Um. If you're not willing to say no, if you think someone simply asking for a raise puts you in a difficult position, that's not a good place to be, and you ought to think seriously about whether or not you have the chops to be a manager. Um, you're still obligated to link pay and performance in the conversation. I'm sorry, you are. Um and I'll tell you one more thing, these conversations go a lot better if you don't simply grant everybody on your team the standard raise amount if you're given a bucket of money to apply to your team on an annual basis. What I mean by that, if you don't know this, we have podcasts where we talk about this, but, but if, 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 if typical bucket mentality is, If Wendy's my boss, and she says, okay, Mark, the division did X, and so you have a 3% bucket. And by the way, another manager might have a 4% bucket, and he takes the total of all of his salaries, and he's got 4% more than that to ladle out however he wants. He's probably not going to take money away from somebody, but he might give somebody 1% and somebody else 6%. What most managers do is say, everybody gets 3%. Well, that's dumb. What you ought to be willing to do is say, you get zero, and you get nine. Um, that's an overstatement. Okay, question ten: Can a manager be a coach, mentor at times, then switch hats? I, I, I don't. I'm not sure I understand this question. I think the answer is yes. Let, let me put it this way: I, I, I don't think of coaching and mentoring as a hat one wears. I say that I see them as behavior. Okay. So I think the answer is yes, but but I'm really not sure. I don't know what you mean by describing the different roles that a manager has, and you do that by using the the verb, you know, be, I'm going to be a coach. A manager is always just a manager. That's our role. You only have one role. It's a manager. It's our activities, our behaviors that change. And if that's what you mean in that vein, yes, absolutely. One minute you're coaching a direct, 15 minutes later you're giving her feedback. Perhaps both of those things occur in a one on one. Perhaps neither one of them occur in the one on one. Manager Tools doesn't talk about wearing different hats because that adds too many moving parts. Um, And a lot of people don't understand the concept. It's not about hat switching, it's about behavior. Wear the manager hat all the time. That's why you can't be friends with your ex. Be yourself, be truthful, be authentic and then change behaviors to fit the situation. Using behavior as the guide here rather than hats or rules, sure, you can coach, then you can mentor, although I wouldn't really use the word mentor. I don't think bosses are mentors. Mentors are people who aren't the bosses. And then you can provide feedback and you can develop relationships and you, all kinds of other behaviors as well. Okay, question 11, what are your top five questions to ask referees when you're checking references? We actually turned this into a podcast. I'm pretty sure, Wendy, does this person know that we turned it into a podcast?
1: They asked before we had the podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, of course, that clearly just doesn't answer my question at all, but that's okay. Uh, One one hopes that they listen, right? Um, So, look, let's go quickly through the 13 steps of question 11 that that came out of the podcast. First of all, you've got to check reference, folks, but, but checking references won't help you hire somebody, it'll just keep you from avoiding disaster. And what you do is you start with an admission hey, listen, we're already at the stage where we're checking references. In other words, you want to tell the company you're asking, the person you're asking, we're very close to making an offer, as opposed to I have to check references, which doesn't suggest that, in fact, any effort has been involved or that, that it wouldn't hurt to give negative comments about somebody. Whereas if you say we're already checking references, or we're at the stage where it's time to check references, companies assume that means this person's already done well, and they can get away with perhaps saying, yeah, I didn't really like this about her or that about him or something. Also, the second thing you do is you start with factual questions. And In the podcast, we talk a lot about how how rules have changed about references and how historically references were a bad thing, and then they became a good thing, but now they're a bad thing again in a way. Uh, And Companies have gotten to the idea that they ought not to be giving references because it puts them at legal risk, even though that's kind of dumb. So you start with, would you please confirm the dates of employment? Because they have probably been told they can tell you the dates of employment. Okay? Um, The next thing is, could you confirm the job title for me, please? Again, factual question. Next, factual, but a little bit in the gray area, Please comment on the accuracy of the following job description. Now, while you're doing this, you want to be really thankful of anything they say, because anything they say beyond he worked here those dates is a bonus, because anybody can get away with that nowadays, much to our chagrin. Um, And then what you do is you progress to more substantive questions. Wendy shared this one. I love this one. I was told about Project X. Can you confirm his involvement? Now we're getting into details, and then you say, can you tell me about the results of the project? And that transition just happens so naturally, and people open up. Okay? Uh, What was his best contribution? And now we're fully away from factual. What would you say his areas for improvement are? And by the way, this is all based on how well you can build rapport while asking questions. We are looking at him for a blank role. How would you assess that fit? And lastly, if you were me or us, any concerns about employing him or her? Now, again, I'm saying these in order, just reading right out of the outline of the show notes, but I'm not suggesting you just ask those questions as if you're interrogating somebody. You have to make this as much of a conversation as you can, saying things like, oh, that's, that makes sense. I haven't thought about that. I think it's good. Thank you. Thank you. Let me write that down. Okay, Next. You know, I was told about Project X. Can you at least confirm his involvement? Okay, good, good. He was involved. Can you tell me about the results? Anything you can share with me? Right. You have to use a conversational tone. You cannot simply pretend to be filling out a questionnaire. You can't, because you know what? An admin might be asked to check references, and he or she might just simply fill out a questionnaire. And those are the kind of people who say, well, this person's not making a decision, and they're probably not going to translate fully what I say, so therefore I'm going to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't share that with you. Wendy, anything to add on that one? Do you think it was fairly faithful to the podcast? Yeah, all
1: well, was faithful. And, and that's the answer, to do it yourself, so that you can have yeah. a conversation manager to manager. It works so much better than having someone else do it, especially someone yeah. like an HR admin.
0: Yeah, good. That's it. Yeah, guys, she's right, and I was wrong. and, and not, It's not just we don't want to delegate it to somebody. We want to do it ourselves. Good. Okay, question 12. Wendy, you're up.
1: Okay. So the question is, how much time should we allocate to our job search, which is a bit odd because only one person searches for a job at a time. So how much time should we allocate to our job search versus interview preparation, both for employed and unemployed job seekers? Um, And the the answer is usually more than you're doing because most people don't do enough. When I was unemployed, I I made 20 applications a day. That was my goal. And when people hear that, they say, wow, wow. Like, like I can't even find. 20 yeah, they don't jobs believe it, related. right? They don't. They don't yeah, don't believe like, it. like there are there aren't 20 jobs out there. I'm like, oh yeah, there are if you're really looking. So yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> so if this the part of this question, you know, if you're employed, then there's an implication that you know time is limited. Or even if you're unemployed and money's running out, there's an implication that the time is limited. But it's only limited if you don't start looking until you need to change, or if. You know, you know the money's running out. If you're always open to opportunities, which is what we recommend, then you're always thinking about your resume and opportunities and the companies and, and what you might say in an interview. So if you're in the position where time is limited, then you've got to, the first thing you've got to do is get your resume together because you can't apply for a job without a resume usually. Um, and that's 24 hours if you if you really work at it and it will be, tedious and boring and hard work but you can do it in 24 hours eight hours of work um and then you could spend some time contacting your network sending out emails and not broadcast email to everybody to save time but single emails to individuals so that you're connecting with them on an individual basis um and, and then spend a couple of hours a day going through the interview series and thinking about your interview answers and your, the, the things that you have, the special skills that you have from your background that nobody else has. But, of course, we're making those recommendations based on not knowing how good your resume is, how good your network is, and how good your interviewing skills are. So if one of them is really good, then, then demote that one and spend the time on the one that you feel weakest in. Um, And if you do it for, you know, 10 hours a day because you're unemployed, then when I was unemployed, I I did 10 hours a day and I had a job in three weeks. And I think that's, (laughs) you know, it depends on everybody, you know, everybody's circumstances are different, but it's possible. And if you believe it's possible, like so many people believe there's no jobs, so it can't be done. Well, there are, and it can. And believe it can, and and then you can make it happen. If you don't believe it's possible... It won't happen. And the other thing we want to tell you is start now, wherever you are, whatever you're, wherever, even if you've just started in a job, like a month ago, you've got to be tracking your accomplishments. You've got to be adding them to your career management document. You've got to be keeping your network open. You've... um, go through the interview series and and, record her and add the accomplishments to the cards for the general story exercise Mm -hmm. think about how you might answer interview questions because even if you've been in a job a month who knows that your boss's job might open up and you were one of those overqualified candidates and now you're interviewing for your boss's job three months after you started at the company, never stop Um, and and if you never stop, if it'll become so ingrained in you that instead of being an interview being that terribly nerve-wracking, um, I can barely breathe, I can't think straight experience, it'll be, yeah. I know my strengths. I know what I'm going to answer. I'm just concentrating on developing a rapport with this guy and yeah. giving him the answers that he needs. That's the way to do it.
0: Yeah, I I will say, thank you, Wendy, I I will say these questions always bother me because the whole issue of what Wendy brought up about time limitation, you should be ready now. I'm telling you, be ready now. It implies that the search, the change, only happens when you need it to, when you're out of a job, and that's not the time. Um, the The time to make career decisions is not when you have to, but when you want to. Okay, question 13. Thanks again, Woody. Um I would appreciate input on best practices to integrate a new manager into an existing group. First, I don't think what happened here is going to be that big of a deal. Um, this manager you hired left, okay? Uh, it sure would help me to know how you've analyzed what went wrong and what you were told by this person. I guess he got, and got a lot more money, um, I'd want to know, I'm not going to say he went through, he was from HR. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd want to know whether or not he did anything that was less than helpful. Uh, and, and their response is not related to him leaving, but rather to his managing them, okay? Um, it really pisses me off that someone from HR left for more money. I admit that, okay? Okay. And, and, and it, was he a manager in HR? Because it's generally a much higher bar to have them move from a non managing role in specialty A to a managing role in specialty B. That is a stretch, and you have to have your ducks in a row to make that work. I wouldn't do that for the vast majority of people I know. In fact, there's a general rule, if you're in sales at company A, you can't be promoted to sales management at company B. If you're an operator, a plant operator at company A, you can't be promoted to a foreman at company B. It's just not done. Uh, it's, it's, you're doing two things at once, changing company and changing power role. It just doesn't work. Um and I'll be, I'll be honest with you, it's a good question, and I'm sorry that this happened to happen to you. So look, relook your interview process. Did you have a detailed process? Did you interview multiple people? Did you use a really in-depth interview, such as like our interview creation tool, which is free to license fees? Um, did you ask managing questions? Did you ask customer service questions? I'd love to see your interview that you created with the interview creation tool. Then have all or a solid percentage of the people that you um, that you interview have your team, the team that this person going to work for or yeah, this person to work for or that this person going to manage have the team interview all of the new people as well. Use our interview results capture meeting, follow that guidance, okay? Um, Then have a really good onboarding process. One of the rules is which nobody goes longer than three days without hearing from you. Um, You lead it, but his or her team carries out a lot of the work with you. And have this person study the basics, about one-on-one's feedback coaching and so on, so that they understand what you're going to expect from them. And and look, if, if you're not doing the Trinity, you bringing somebody in, and then expecting them to do well in building relationships simply because they're good at relationships, um, that's a tough thats a tough list in, in my opinion. But look, you just need to professionalize your hiring process. Admit to the team, hey, I made a mistake, and say i like your help, and get them more involved. 99% of the people who are directs of managers that are being hired never are consulted. So consult them. Have them have a say. Don't hire anybody that the team hates. Now, if one idiot on the team says, I don't like any of these guys, you can overrule him or her. But if most people say, we like this guy, and you like that guy, shoot, that's your choice. Not that liking is how we determine whether or not somebody passed an interview. Okay, number 14, uh, where would I look for a crash course in writing and managing RFPs? It's a pretty good question. Um, I like it that somebody is trying to be ready for a new role that – needs for a new in a new role that they're interested in but i admit i'm a little leery of you applying for this role because it's so clearly not right for you because they're saying that's a core part of the job and you've never done it it's a bit like me writing code today well i've technically written code but no long dang time and and look i like the idea of let's swing for you know let's take a swing at the pitch and see what happens but before you start studying Please develop two behavioral interviewing answers around the two RFPs you were involved in. See how good of a, an answer you can come up with for how valuable you were in the RFPs you had a role in. And then I've got to tell you, I, I checked it. The answer here is to Google it. I don't, I don't have any specific knowledge of a particular company that trains RFPs, but RFPs are a huge part of business life, particularly a huge part of government and, and nonprofit life. Um, governmental organizational life is gigantic. Um, and what you already know plus some online training should suffice to get you as far as you can go under the circumstances because your job doesn't require this. i got to tell you, though, if I were hiring, I'd probably give you very low marks just because you attended training if there are others who had RFP experience. Now, if nobody else has RFP experience and you're the only one with some experience that actually wins some training, now you're at the top of the heat. So again, I like what you're thinking. And look, all interviewing processes are a mixture of skills. Nothing wrong with trying to bolster a weakness a little bit. I wouldn't go to the class and, and therefore spend less time or stint on my interview preparation about all the other things that would make me good at the job. Okay, fifteen. Advice on how to put together a team. I'm going to refer you to the movie Young Frankenstein. No, um, I, I don't. Um, this is an impossible question. It's utterly impossible. Okay, I, I finally met my match. Drucker teaches us that there is no one right organizational structure. The organization must fit the task. Drucker's so smart. I can't know the task that you're doing well enough to give guidance without, I'm sorry to say this, without charging you a consulting fee. I, I can't. I won't. It, it, there's too much involved here. The idea that there's a general answer to how do I divide work up between roles and the level of specialization and appropriate level of seniority, I, I can't know. Um, as a general rule, I can say this about structural, about thinking about structure. You start by building the structure that you think fits the task. And by the way, I, my first, one of my first consulting gigs, I got asked by an EVP to build a structure. And I everything I did came straight from Drucker. Then the second thing you do is, you, you, in other words, you build an org chart, the line and block org chart. Okay? Then you fit people into those boxes and then you modify the boxes based on the skills of the people you actually put into each of the boxes. I'm not talking about stick figures. I'm talking about actual people whose strengths and weaknesses you know. This is why at the top of organizations, some CLOs have 10 people working for them, and some have two because some CLOs are great managers and others are not, and they're going to be more strategic along with a CEO. That's how smart people at the top of the organization do it. So let me give you some other good rules that you can think of. And by the way, if you want to talk about this more, send me an email, but, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm not going to spend hours and hours on this because this is a consulting solution and it's not cheap. Um, but if you want to pitch me on what you think it's going to be, I'll, I'll critique your answer. Some other good rules to think about. Always have less people than you think you need. Always. That's Horstman's first law of building a team as long as you remember that all my laws are subordinate subordinate to Drucker coughing or burping about this stuff. Um, Hire for people skills, not just job skills. Okay, don't hire people that are right for the job that are a jerk. Don't bring that perfect guy in who's an ass, unless you know you can mitigate his problems. Arrogate producers are hard to deal with normally for many managers. If you're a manager-tools manager, good. But if he or she attempts to become the culture of an uncultured organization, that's a lot of really, really hard work. And you're going to have to smack them around. And the question, no offense, don't take that the wrong way, guys. Give me a little leeway there. And the problem is, is he insecure or is she insecure? And if you have to box their ears a couple of times and they're insecure, um, no offense, but they'll start pissing on your culture. That's not good. And a really bad culture in the first year will take five years to overcome. Okay, question 16. Wendy, I think we're doing okay on time, yeah? Uh,
1: Yeah, we are. We've got two minutes.
0: Okay. What is Manager Tools' recommendation for any managers want to help decrease the gender gap in leadership roles in the organization? I wonder why it took eight years if somebody asked me this question. Um, The way to decrease – well, anyway, I I could tell stories about this all day long. The way to decrease the gender gap is to hire more women – and then work on a case-by-case basis to help them outperform others, including men. Okay? No woman should get promoted just because she's a woman. She should get promoted because she deserves, regardless of her gender or her sex, because of performance, because of her potential to be promoted. Uh, the beauty of this is that, fortunately for women, the factors that go into promotion decisions are usually kind of vague. Unfortunately, men are the ones making the decision. Uh, And men don't recognize their own biases. Hire women when all things are equal. And they rarely are, but if they're within a uh, hair's breadth of one another, hire the woman. Okay, that's the start of decreasing the gender gap. Build relationship with key decision makers. I did not say build build relationships with key women. Build relationship with key decision makers regardless of their gender or their sex. So that you can politic on behalf of the women and of the men you recommend for promotion. Too many managers wonder why they can't get the people promoted, and it's because nobody knows how much how good you are because you don't have any relationships with the VP who sits on the promotion board. Okay? Bust your butt to compensate for the internal biases against women. And if you haven't heard me say this before, folks, Wendy, can you tell me how many people do we have on the call right now? Is it Uh in trouble?
1: No, you're good. <laughs> 50
0: off. Okay. Look, guys, if a woman has achieved the same level as you, men, she has worked twice as hard, put up with more crap, been sexually harassed, probably physically harassed, arguably touched in ways way she doesn't want to be, been paid less, gone home, done more home, done more home chores than you have. And, and it's shocking because half of the world's potential – resides in half of the world's people, which is to say women. We're nuts. The idea that you, the human race isn't as good off as it could be, and there are women who have potential to offer, and we can't see beyond our biases, just ludicrous. And if you're sitting there listening to me as a man and going, I don't have any biases, you're an idiot because you got them. Trust me, you got them. I have them. I know it, and I work hard to compensate. Every single person manager Tools has hired has been a woman because they're better. The ones we hire... Um, look, we're not trying to promote women. We're we're trying to ensure the sustainment of the organization and women play a role because, again, we we oughtn't be excluding half the world's talent because we're bigoted. Um, Spend your political capital at creating relationships with guys who have a say. Make them your friends and tell them they owe you one and you expect them to support your girl for promotion. And by the way, I said spend your political capital. By the way, that means creating political capital. The best way to increase your po- political capital is to deliver great results in your role and to have relationships with the people who have more political power than you. What you're going to hear elsewhere from, from oh, reporters and consultants who get quoted is you need to join women's professional groups so that you can proselytize for your firm and have more women apply to your firm. And look, that's fine, okay? Okay. But those folks always leave out this other stuff I said, the internal battles to get people promoted. Um, And what I said, what I just talked about, the internal stuff, is what's really valuable. If you have a woman working for you and you think she's good enough, work hard, push her, and help her grow. And at the same time, encourage her to go home as well. Don't teach women uh, a lesson that men stupidly learn, which is you have to work 80 hours a week in order to get ahead. That's dumb. It's, It's dumb. It's literally not smart. Being smart is figuring out how to get all your work done and go home. I just talked to a CEO today who just hired us to do some training and then perhaps some consulting as well. Um, she's a CEO. She has two kids. And she said, you know, it's beginning to be a bit of a struggle. I said, yeah, you should go home. Figure out who your lieutenants is good and, and push more work to them and then go home and figure out that there's some stuff you're doing that you don't need to be doing. Um I mentioned this already, but we've only hired women at Manager Tools. And, and look, we're a small company. We have complete control of things. We're outside the spotlight. We're outside of official reporting. And we don't give a crap what anybody else thinks about our management processes because we're good at it. Um, and we're pretty sure our staff likes it here a lot. Um, and if you've met the people who work here, the women like Danny and Wendy and Maggie and Tracy, y- you'll understand why we hired them. Um, and, and look, one more thing, Be smart. Live to fight another day. If you get recognized as the person who promotes women in a really male-biased culture, that could hurt you. Um, So choose your battles carefully and always be conscious of timing. Or as the guy said, discretion is the better part of valor. It's a marathon and not a sprint. Okay. Number 17. This is a classic. My wife just started working for the same company I've worked at for the past 10 years. Oh, my answer starts with, holy moly. At least this isn't as bad as the person who asked me recently. What do I do now that my firm has hired my wife as one of my directs? Not sure what's worse, that the firm hired his wife and he didn't, or that his wife is now his direct. Okay, now to be clear, in this situation, we had to ask for some clarification. Guys, regardless of whether your wife is in a different department, if your wife is the HR director, you're going to have a professional relationship with her. (laughs) And whether the two of you have the ultimate professional relationship that works brilliantly, the problem isn't only your ability to work well. It's the perceptions that surround your working relationship that are going to be problematic. The answer to our question about what the relationship was, as I expected, um, this person's wife reports to a peer of this person, and the questioner and the peer the peer being the boss of his wife, both report to the same person, the chief operating officer of the firm, meaning the wife here is it when it comes to HR. And that makes this situation very tough because HR has to be and has to appear to be unbiased with her husband in this situation. And in this situation, her husband has a lot of key directs reporting to him. So, look, I I I would have a conversation with your wife about how the two of you are going to interact at work, okay, My recommendation, and look, guys, I'm sorry to say this, but I've I've had this question before, so I'm just going to be really blunt. No hugging, no kissing, no terms of endearment. If there are going to be disagreements about stuff at work in either of your minds, talk about about them at night or at some time before to help with the perception of the discussion that you have in front of other people and to help with the aftermath at home. Uh, There's an old, there's happy marriages are all the same, and unhappy marriages are all unhappy in their own way. I think that's actually a a bastardization of Tolstoy. um, So you're going to have to talk about boundaries at home. I think many families in your situation, I've talked to a couple of them uh, who have your similar situation, would have a rule about not talking about work at home. If you don't know this, the single largest, single highest percentage of fights in marriages happen in the kitchen. And psychologists, sociologists say it's not because people fight about what they're cooking. It's not because they spend a lot of time in the kitchen necessarily. It's because one spouse is already in the kitchen when the other spouse comes home. One spouse has decompressed, the other one hasn't. And there's a conflict between work and family boundaries in the kitchen. And the thing to do is when you get home, if your spouse is already in the kitchen, Go in, say, I, I'm home, honey. Kiss on the cheek. Go into the bedroom and change clothes and take 10 minutes to be home before you start interacting with your spouse who has already been home. Okay? Um, if you feel a disagreement brewing, um, if, if you feel that, agree that you'll talk about it in advance. And look, I'm accused of being Machiavellian all the time. People, staff say to me, you never don't have a reason for what you do. Um, So some of you aren't going to like what I'm going to say, but I'm right. I might engineer some open disagreements, which we had planned to handle respectfully, in order for people to see us handling a disagreement respectfully in front of them. I would let my spouse take her position, and then I would take a different position, and I would let her talk me out of it. I'm sure that makes me terrible, but it sure works. Um, be careful about decisions where one of you is not involved, but the other one will be expected to have an opinion. Okay? Those are the situations that really bother people. Feel you're, other people will feel you're supporting the spouse to promote bliss at home. And that probably or may not be so, but that's the perception, and it's the perception that matters. And you have a small enough organization, or at least you're close enough to the top of your organization, that's a problem. Okay? Please, more talk at home before situations, before situations, and less talk afterwards. If you feel like there's a situation brewing between your spouse and you, just avoid the conversation at work that day. Say, guys, give me some time to think about it. I'll get back to you in the morning. And then go home and sit down with your spouse and say, what do you think we should do? Okay. And if you decide in advance that, that you're going to disagree, talk about how you're going to disagree. Nothing wrong with that. Um, and look, I know I don't need to say this, but manage your relationships effectively at work so that the perception doesn't strain, any perceptions that you may be playing favorites or whatever, don't strain an already weak relationship with somebody whom you need to have a good relationship with. Yeah, I'll mention one final thing that's uh, I just, full disclosure here. A number of years ago, I was very touched by a column written by one of my favorite authors, George Will. He wrote about a family who sued to block surgery for their own son, whose name was Philip, who had Down syndrome. And George Will found the, the parents choosing to deny life-saving surgery for their own son, he found it objectionable. And he wrote about how objectionable he found it. And he got a lot of letters, and so he wrote about the aftermath of his column in another column, and he ended that second column with this. I conclude by mentioning two things, only the second of which is relevant. I am being sued by this family who think that what I've reported injures their reputations and who mistakenly think they've been libeled. And the second thing he mentioned was Jonathan Will, nine years old, trout fisherman, Orioles fan, and my son, has Down Syndrome so for the record as I give you advice about how to handle work family balance and your spouse and so on I conclude by mentioning two things the second of which may affect your disposition this isn't family tools and I'm divorced twice question 18 I've been asked by our CEO to help interview candidates for the COO position um So, great question, really, really great question, and it's really pretty easily handled, but there's a political dimension we need to mention. The first thing you do is prepare for the interview. Get all the documents your CEO will give to you related to this candidate, resume, anything else the company has and will share. And believe me, for a COO, there better be a big old pile. Holy moly, get the job description, okay? Whatever else they're using to frame the job. And they might say, COOs don't have job descriptions, but there's something. Some admin somewhere up there has something. Um, they'll say C-suite jobs, don't have job descriptions, but there's going to be something, okay? Uh, You can at least infer what the COO's role is going to be. If the company is going in a new direction and the COO is supposed to play a role, and he surely he or she will, interviewing him or her based on what the last guy did is okay, but it's also kind of dead, too. If possible, go to HR and ask, who else was evaluated? Who else was eliminated and Why? or maybe is just waiting to hear, what else this person is having done? In other words, what other interviews are happening? Who else is interviewing them? Know as much as you can about the entire situation rather than suddenly describing your life as one interview with a future COO. You should be thinking about the strategy around the tactic you are playing. Okay. Um, ask the CEO if you can what he or she will be doing as far as further interviewing. There's a good chance you're going to learn something about the likelihood of this person getting the job. I, this, this is my favorite guy. This should go good. For all you know, somebody's going to tell you, this is the guy the CEO wants. They might also tell you, CEO didn't want this guy, but he has to interview three or four people to make it look good. You want to know that before you walk in after interviewing his number one guy and say, this guy's an income poop. That doesn't help. Okay. Next, prepare a fabulous interview. and That's the easy part. Just use the interview creation tool based on what your preparation is showing you for the job. Conduct a totally wicked great formal interview that's also very pleasant, and follow our interview results capture tool follow-up response. Just just do that. I recommend we hire or not hire, and here's why. Here are the factors that I find most helpful. And then expect to be briefing your CEO on how you've prepared and what you found in the interview and what your results were. (laughs) It should be cool. So send me an email. Let me know how it goes. Okay, number nineteen. Ooh, uh, guidance about somebody who's on the road two hundred days a year. Uh, I, I love this question. It seems only fair that this question comes after my mentioning that I'm twice divorced. And and guys, my travel schedule had nothing to do with me being divorced. I was just stupid. <laughs> I, 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 the first thing is talk, 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 talk. Communicate until you're blue in the face and then keep talking. And, of course, communication is talking and listening, so keep listening. Number two, consult with your spouse regularly about your schedule. By this I mean have an agreement that you're going to talk about your travel schedule in detail on a set, regular basis. Okay? More specifically, I shared every item on my calendar with my spouse and went over it with her. We talked every month about every trip, and we talked every week usually on Sunday nights about where I would be and what I would be doing. I thought it was crazy that my spouse had access to my online calendar and 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 didn't look but I finally just gave in and started printing it and I discovered the problem with printing it was it was changed so frequently just like schedules at home do and that created problems but but they were smaller problems than my wife not looking at my calendar for whatever reason. Talk about how you're going to handle conflicts with schedule in advance. Talk about how you're going to resolve conflict scheduling. Maybe you come home early for some things. Maybe you stay on the road for other things. Maybe it's 24-hours notice. Maybe you try 24-hours notice and that doesn't work, and then you try something else. Sometimes this is a function of cost to the company for airline charges. It's funny, that, that wasn't prevalent when I started flying, but now that's significant. Um, you know, In the beginning... There weren't any fees. Now there are big fees, but I have so many miles in America that an American didn't charge me. I would give a thumbs up to spending family money if the company wouldn't do so, or at least fly home early And when your boss says, you you, you can't go, that will cost money, but we don't have a budget for that. I I paid for it myself. My wife wanted me to be home. I came home. Um, Now, that then makes this a question about how you and your spouse feel about money. And I'm sorry I'm not a good person to ask about that I don't I don't have any feelings about money money doesn't interest me but some people are really particular about it okay the recommendations I'm making usually means that the home spouse has to become way more effective knowing what's coming up with the family schedule. I have talked to many executives in this situation. One source of tension I've seen repeatedly with traveling executives is them sharing every bit of detail and the home spouse saying every week, oh, it's just school. There's no need for me to tell you what our schedule is. It's the same every week. And that's just plain false, as anyone who has kids knows. Okay, so you've got to look at the month, and you've got to look at each week, and they can't just say, oh, it's the same week as always, because then you miss recitals, then you miss school plays, and so on. Okay? Something else. This is the big one, number five. Usually fears about having to travel are way overblown, way overblown. Okay? I know too many execs whom I've told, cancel that trip, and they say they can't, and then they get an ultimatum, from their spouse, and when they do cancel it, their boss says, Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, uh, okay. They thought it was going to be a big deal, and it was nothing. You can curtail your travel more than you realize. You probably developed a habit of seeing travel as part of the solution, and nowadays it's not necessarily so. If you had to call a client and tell them at the very last minute you couldn't come, most of them would be fine. I've never missed a plane flight in my professional life, ever. But I've called clients at the last minute and said, I'm not coming. And they said, okay, stuff happens. I've only had four clients ever cancel three with one company in one year, um, and they're still a client. But um, you probably overburden yourself thinking, I have to go on this trip. Okay? If you doubt what I just said, remember, aren't you supposed to be willing to lose your job? Because of your work, I mean, aren't you supposed to be willing to lose it? You can't make every decision as have the backdrop of "I might lose my job." This will cause your spouse to one day say, "Fine, lose it then." Using that as a trump card um, is, is not good. Your spouse will see it. Your spouse is going to see your job as security, whereas you're using it as a weapon. Uh, and then you're acting as if you're just protecting your family, and it doesn't come across in a cool way at all to stay-at-home spouses. The other thing that's really, really huge is when you're home, be the hell home, okay? You don't have to take over parenting completely, like doing the cooking, if your spouse normally does that when you're home. Um, In many cases, your spouse cooking for you is part of him or her expressing love. But by God, don't do dare work every night. When you're home, go to bed with your spouse. No long rounds of golf. No boys' or girls' weekends away. Put your damn email, email-enabled smartphone away. You'd be surprised how unavailable you can be and get away with it. Um, you know, it's amazing. People say, oh, I can't get away from it. And then they all admit to feeling joy when the door closes on the plane and nobody can call them. So apparently, there are times when you can turn off your phone when you're on a plane. The idea that you need to be available is irrelevant. If your boss is going to call you, he or she is going to call you. You don't have to be available. But sitting around being available is not a way to live your life. Communicate while you're on the road. Talk about how you're going to do it. Maybe it's text throughout the day. Maybe it's a phone call every night. If you're smart, it's text throughout the day. It's a phone call throughout the day. And it's a video call every night or FaceTime. Show them your hotel room. Show them how boring and sucky life on the road is. Also, separate family communications, meaning kid communications, from spouse communications. That, that means talk to your spouse and the kids every night, but don't take time away from your spouse to talk to the kids. In other words, don't have Monday with the spouse and Tuesday with the kids. The spouse, you talk to your spouse every night. And I'm going to tell you something else. I did this. It really worked. Make notes about what your kids are doing and ask about it on the next phone call. I, I know a lot of parents who are like, oh, that's nice, honey. That's good. And then after two calls, they say, aren't you going to ask them about our recital Oh, yeah, honey, I, you know, when they get to be about eight years old, they know you don't remember. Something else, to set an end date. Be willing to quit. In other words, say, I'll do this for two years, but after that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask my boss for a change because we can't do this forever. Be willing to quit before the problems become permanently embedded in your marriage. And I want to say one final thing, um, in the humorous interest of continuing with interesting disclosure about my personal life. In 10 years of being a single dad, having custody of my son, Drake, every Thursday, every Thursday of the year other than July when I have him all month, and traveling 150 to 200 days a year, I have only missed 10 Thursday with him, one a year. If I can do that, you can talk to your spouse every night. five minutes. Okay. Okay, cool. Um. Number 20 really pissed me off, <laughs> but, but I learned that, the, that I had misunderstood the question. This person the manager, is repeatedly, tired of repeatedly discussing the same things over and over again with his directs. If you're tired of talking about their stuff simply because it's their stuff, that's not good. It's a bad thing. Their stuff matters to them, so sit and listen. Good management isn't clever or complex. It's boring and repetitive, and hopefully you gain some insights about people over time. If you're tired of your people whining, then I can totally see your point. If they're complaining about other people... On the team, help them solve their problems. If you don't think they're going to solve their problems, give them negative feedback about the behaviors they're engaging in in the relationship. Give them negative feedback about talking about other directs to you without having tried to work out the problem with their directs in advance. Uh, If they try and repeatedly fail, you can give them feedback about the fact that they don't have good relationship behaviors. There's nothing wrong with telling each one of them that you hold them accountable for both their results and their relationships, and working well with others is something you expect. You don't have to sit around and listen to your people whine. I'd have to know more to be sure, but I'd be willing to bet that there's one instigator or there's a culture there that would benefit from systemic feedback or some end-of-year review feedback that says, you're not a team player because you come into my one-on-ones and you're constantly complaining about everybody else. And I've never met a great team player who complains their boss all the time about everybody else on the team. It's just not possible. I wouldn't do that at the end-of-year review if I hadn't talked to him about it several times throughout the year. Um, and I want to mention something else, but in an email that you sent me, Questioner, I, I I think I'm wrong about this, but I wrote this at first. It has been my experience uh, that managers who say they're tired of listening to people complain have done it themselves or, at a minimum, haven't called it out more readily. Uh, and I think this is complex enough that I'm happy to have an email exchange with you or maybe a private phone conversation to try to help you with this. Okay? All right. Yes, no questions. The answer to the first question is no. It doesn't take that much time. But I would say that two times a year it isn't very much. Try four times for the next year, and if you don't get an answer, dump the person. In a small office, if you invite one person to your wedding, is it unprofessional not to invite everyone? No, it isn't unprofessional. It may be awkward, but it's your wedding. Invite who you want. That's wedding etiquette. And I'm actually pretty good at etiquette, guys. My mom was a real stickler for etiquette. I had Emily Post. I have Amy Vanderbilt. I like Miss Manners. It's your wedding. You don't have to invite anybody you don't want to. And, in general, my experience with weddings, uh, and I'm not talking just mine, either uh, are smaller is better. When I receive a job application, do I automatically put it in the reject pile if it doesn't have a tailored cover letter? Yes, I automatically put that in in, in the rejection pile. But I am incredibly hard on this process, and I can understand some of you overlooking that, and it wouldn't bother me at all if you thought the resume was great. Sometimes younger people don't, no one's ever told them the cover letter. If somebody's talking to me, and they're sending me a resume, and they haven't done some research and found out that we recommend cover letters, yeah, I'm not going to tell them no because i have a cover letter. I'm going to tell them no because they're stupid. Okay. Um, do I ever listen to audiobooks? books? Uh, no. Uh, I don't mind if you do, but I read very fast. Um, and frankly, I've discovered that people who are reading these books, they don't really know what they're reading. And something else too, when it comes to you know, when I'm re- talking about management books, an actor reading a management book, really, that's a good thing. No. And so particularly management books that are bad. Why slow down something that's already bad? It's like, oh, please, tear my Band-Aid off my arm and take an hour to do it. Uh, But to be clear, I don't listen to podcasts either. I think most of them are crap. Um, And I have no problem with any of you saying that you do listen to them. It's just a consumption preference. Some people have long commutes, so listening makes sense. But I would encourage you to listen at one and a half speed, which is something you can do on most machines. I don't recommend The Economist anymore. It's gotten too political. Is it close? Yeah. If you want to read it, fine. Then I got ask, do you ever wear a seersucker? Yes, in fact, I do. I have a couple of pairs of seersucker short pants. I love them. Seersucker is a great material. Uh, it's Indian, as I recall. Uh, it used to be confined to white old men in the southern United States, but it's back in vogue now. But the problem for me is I'm, I'm big. I'm 6'4 and 250, and I wouldn't look good in this year's sucker suit. I wish I did, but I wouldn't, so just short pants. Did, I, did we fill the open positions that I mentioned? No, but we are discussing the opportunity with a couple people, and I am absolutely confident that we will fill the position before the end of the year. We have to because we're planning 100-plus conferences next year, and I will. Simple. Um, is Chicago the closest we plan to get to Minneapolis for a convention? No, we're coming to Minneapolis on 29 April. Now, to be clear, our first trip there, we only had like five people at the conference, so that's not good. But we get a lot of web traffic from Minneapolis, so please talk it up. And yes, I will mention a Minneapolis meetup and things I think I think, and Wendy will mention it in the newsletter. Um, Wendy, did you say something? No. Okay. Um, Will MT reach sustainability to allow Mark and Mike to step away from the company? Yes, we could do that now. What do people think I'm doing? Sit around just writing the cast and not running the company? Yeah, except for writing podcasts, the Manager Tools podcast. I could absolutely step away from Manager Tools tomorrow. Wendy could do the stuff she does. Danny could do the stuff she does. Yes. That's what executives, leaders do. But I'm not going to because I really, really, really like my job. I mean, like, really, really. I like my job more than anybody in this call likes their job. I'm just kidding. Any plans for a Charlotte conference? Yeah, August 5th, 2014. Um, should people share the name of their employer on social media sites? This is a hard question the way it's structured, so listen carefully. Yes, you should not share your employer name as a general rule unless you were authorized to speak for the firm. Naming your firm implies that you have authority to do so and are speaking for the firm. Now, look, I know this is a gray area, and that's not a great answer. And I think five years from now the answer may be different, but for now discretion is better. And Folks, let me tell you something else. I don't care what young people are saying today in the press. You do not have free speech within the walls of your employer, this, at least in the U.S. The Supreme Court, is, this is a settled law, and it's true in Europe as well. If your employer doesn't care for the comments, they could fire you. Now You might be able to sue them and win, win the battle, but you won't get an injunction to have them pay you and get, let you keep your job while you sue them for the right to have your job back. And you'll always have been the guy that sued your previous employer, and that's going to be online forever. Have you thought about having custom feedback post poker chips made? Yeah, we have. We did have them made, and the firm we contracted with was impossible to deal with. Um, that said, we have been staying out of anything to do with physicality up until now. But come back tomorrow. After all, it's spring, and it's baseball, and you never know. Um, so, yeah, we could do that. This could be something. Wendy has talked about using CafePress to have some swag on the website, and we are considering that. Any further activity on releasing a few executive tools, Cass. Um Yes, activity, completion, no. It's not going off my radar, but I've got plenty of products to deliver in the next six months. And have I ever taken a decision in my business development actions that needed luck? no. Holy crap. Good Lord, no. No, 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 no. Luck is the residue of design. We work like hell. We have reasonably good plans, and we do the best we can. Okay, I went over time. I never go over time, but I did by two minutes. Guys, it is a privilege to do this for you. We love the – I love preparing for these calls. I wish we could do them more often. It occurred to me on this call that sometime in the next six months to a year, Wendy and I, or maybe Mike and I, will record a podcast that you can listen to on a licensee call like this and then put out the recording as a podcast, because we can record the cast to the level of quality we want while you guys are listening in. I think that would be the most boring thing ever, but you might enjoy being part of what it essentially will be the second only live cast we ever did. Thank you for being part of our community. Um, stay frosty. Good night.